Hello, and thank you for joining our podcast, Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer Morning Commute, What's on the Horizon? Morning Commute is developed in collaboration with At Point of Care and Projects and Knowledge and is part of a continuing medical education series. This activity is supported by an independent medical education grant from Regeneron Pharmaceuticals and Sanofi Genzyme. Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash NSCLC3. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. This URL can be accessed in the episode notes. You can also find the complete three-part series by visiting morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash NSCLC. Joining us today is Dr. Naya Rizvi, who is the Price Family Professor of Medicine in the Division of Hematology Oncology at Columbia University Irving Medical Center in New York City. And Dr. Sarah Goldberg, who is an Associate Professor of Medical Oncology at the Yale Cancer Center, Yale School of Medicine in New Haven. In this episode, Drs. Rizvi and Goldberg discuss new therapies in the pipeline as well as immunotherapy combinations. At the time this podcast was recorded, Simiplumab was pending approval. I am your host, Candace Hoffman, Managing Editor of Morning Commute. Dr. Rizvi will begin our discussion. Welcome to Podcast 3, What's on the Horizon for Lung Cancer. Uh, my name is Naya Rizvi from Columbia University. I'm joined by Sarah Goldberg from uh, Yale. And we uh, first started using immune checkpoint blockade uh, for lung cancer. It's been, I think, around 12 years ago now, which is pretty remarkable that uh, when we think back to the first days when we were, had our first patient that got nivolumab and how excited we were by their responses. I remember one of my first patients, um, this was probably, this is over 10 years ago, he had a big adrenal metastasis and he, you know, he was in, in clinic and, you know, he was having a lot of pain and from the adrenal uh, mass and he, he got his dose of nivolumab and he actually had to go to the, to the urgent care for some IV pain medications. Um, and then he went home and then he, he woke up the next day and he had absolutely no pain. And, uh, you know, this is one of your first patients, you know, you're, you know, you drink the Kool-Aid that this is really the future of lung cancer. <laughs> so currently we have, um, Pembrolizumab approved in the more than PD1, more than 50% population, as well as atezolizumab um, approved in PDL1 high patients. This was uh, actually a trial with Simiplumab was actually an interesting trial because they use the same PDL1 assay, the 22C3 assay as a keynote 024. And um, so it was a very similar study design, randomizing patients to Pembrolizumab, I'm sorry, randomizing patients to Simiplumab or chemotherapy with the primary endpoints of overall survival. It was also um, an interesting trial because it was really kind of a real world population where uh, patients did not require to have stable brain metastases. They could um, have, you know, have had as long as the brain mass were treated, they were enrolled on. Patients with a history of hepatitis or HIV were allowed on. And um, there was a significant proportion of squamous patients that tend to do uh, do worse. So it was kind of a, a, a very clear registration trial, but more real world in terms of uh, patient eligibility. And um, it, um, you know, very clearly, um, you know, met its uh, primary endpoint of, uh, of overall survival. It um, will be reviewed by the FDA for approval um, um, in February of, uh, of 2021. And um, I think it's um, great that we have other uh, immune checkpoint inhibitor trials as uh, treatment options in the first line um, setting. 
Also in this trial, they were able to study the magnitude of benefit by the actual threshold of PDL1 score, and the patients who had the more than 90% actually did exceedingly well, um, suggesting that uh, not just more than 50% threshold, but by increments, we can see a correlation with, with benefits. So uh, more data in terms of um, uh, um, likelihood of response based on PD-L1 testing, real-world evidence data um, showing that uh, PD-1 therapy in the first-line setting is sort of here to stay as a um, first-line treatment option for the more than 50% group, and we have now uh, more than one treatment option. Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, I think this trial is really exciting. It shows just as you know, several other trials have shown now that, that PD-1 inhibitor alone can be or is more effective than chemotherapy. Clearly, overall survival is better in these patients with pd one greater than or equal to 50%. So I, I expect that it will be approved um, based on this positive um, outcome of overall survival. And, and it, I agree, it's nice to have another treatment option for patients in the first-line setting. You know, but I think, you know, we, I think we had a lot of excitement around some of their new immunotherapy targets, such as other immune checkpoints, such as LAG3 and um, OX40 and, and, and others. And, uh, you know, it's been harder to crack that nut in terms of moving us to the next level. Um, we definitely have options now in the first line setting for lung cancer. We talked in podcast one and two about um, first line pembrolizumab. Uh, ipilimumab and nivolumab in combination, and the different chemotherapy combinations with Pembro and chemotherapy, or atezolizumab and chemotherapy. And um, you know, one of the more newer combinations that was approved is uh, uh, what was called the 9LA regimen, which is a combination of uh, abbreviated chemotherapy with two cycles of chemotherapy in combination with ipilimumab and nivolumab, the concept being that um, the immunotherapy drugs can take a little bit of time to work. So if you're able to give some initial chemotherapy to uh, and do some synergy with the immunotherapy, get, get some cytoreduction, and then give the immunotherapy time to work. And that also was a regimen that was recently approved. Sarah, have you used 9LA yet? I have not. I haven't had the opportunity. I haven't. I haven't thought. You know, thought that it was appropriate for any particular patient I've seen since it was approved. I think the idea is really, really a good one. You know, give the chemo initially just to get people past that first couple of weeks, really, first month or two, and then stick with immune therapy alone. But that's a lot of drugs, right? So two chemotherapy drugs and two immune therapy drugs. If you look at the toxicity in the trial, it actually looks tolerable. You know, I, I would call it a tolerable regimen, but I, I, I think in practice it's got to be uh, more challenging for patients since I think even just ipinevo on its own can be challenging yeah. since it has this higher risk of immune toxicities. But, you know, I think for some people there might be select cases where I would consider it. So I, I think it's always nice to have options for patients and, and have that as a, a regimen that you could choose. Um, but I think it really is for the select patients, at least at this point. I mean... Hopefully, yeah. at some point, we'll see some randomized data compared to you know, comparing these various regimen options that we have. But at least right now, I, I think it, it can be considered for select patients, but um, not not my standard. I gave it to my first patient just um, last week, and um, she was uh, a patient who um, presented with uh, with three A disease and um, resected and got adjuvant chemotherapy, um, and then in about seven or eight months recurred with extensive bilateral uh, lung metastases, really kind of exploded. 
uh, in terms of her disease. And she had a PDL1 of zero. She had a TMB of like, mm, like 10, 11 mutations per megabase, which is kind of intermediate. And she also had a keep one mutation and an SDK11 mutation, both mutations which are associated with worse prognosis and possibly uh, worse response to immunotherapy. So for her with a negative PDL1 and very aggressive disease and some resistance mutations, I thought giving her a more aggressive regimen like this was, uh, was appropriate. What do you think, Sarah? Yeah, in my mind, the, the ideal person for that regimen is someone who has a lot of disease, needs a response, but has a good performance status to tolerate it. But that's a tough, <laughs> that's a tough patient to find, you know, someone who has so much disease that they need a good response, but then they have a really good performance status to tolerate it. Um, but I agree, especially someone with a low PDL1 or zero PDL1, where I'm worried that they won't benefit from, from the immune therapy. And, and you know, I, the Ipimivo data on its own in, in the less than 1% PDL1 patients is really promising, but but if you think they also need chemotherapy, this might be the way to do it. So I, yeah, I think that's really, I'm, I'm interested to hear that you're using all of these um, various biomarkers that are, I would say probably not necessarily standard, but it sounds like you're you're using them kind of as part of your calculation when deciding, but uh, I imagine not as a sole deciding factor of, of when to choose these types of regimens, like the SDK11 mutation. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think the more information you have, the better. You know, certainly there aren't biomarkers for some of the newer drugs that, you know, that we're exploring. Um, there's now randomized trials with a, with a TIGID antibody in combination with atezolizumab in, in different trials in non-small cell and small cell lung cancer. Your thoughts on TIGID as a potential target? Do you have any, I know you guys have had some initial, some experience with yeah. it early on, as I recall. Yeah, so I think that the phase two data for that drug looks really good in combination with uh, atezolizumab. Particularly in the high PDL one, the greater than 50% um, PDL one patients, and so yes, just like you're saying, there's now a randomized phase three trial uh, in the first line setting. So I'm excited about that. We have that trial open at Yale, and I think it's a, a great study. You know, we already have talked about how for patients with PDL one greater than or equal to 50%, we we would typically think about single agent uh, immune therapy. But the truth is, it's not like everybody's responding. You know, there there's still plenty of people who aren't responding or who have a more transient response. So. I think that still is an area where we can definitely do better. And, and so maybe maybe TIGIT is, is the answer. We'll see. I mean, that, that trial is, is ongoing. So it'll probably be some right. time until we know. That's one of the ones I'm, I'm absolutely watching. So this is a clinical situation, which I don't know what the answer is, but it occurs very frequently where you have a patient, you know, they're pdl one positive, you know, they get pembrolizumab monotherapy. And as you said, not everyone responds. Um, you know, the non-response rate or, or progression of disease is the best response is seen in about 20% of patients. The progression-free survival at one year is 50%. But, you know, but they're pdl one positive. They should respond. And so when they progress, there's a lot of temptation to just continue the immunotherapy and add chemotherapy to it. And, uh, it's not something I routinely do because there's no data for that, but um, do you want to talk about your clinical experience about regarding that and also the trials that are coming down the pike in that setting? Yeah, I agree. This is a, an area where we could use some more data as well. There's lots of areas like that right now in lung cancer. It's like the more data you get, the more questions you have about what actually to do. Um, but I agree, it's tempting to keep it going, especially in someone that has a high PDL one and you think they might have benefited in some way. So. It's not standard to keep it. Uh, there's no data that shows that we need to do that or that, but there's also no data that shows that we don't. So there's just no data. So, you know, in patients who have really any PDL1 expression who are progressing, but I think they still are 
thriving some benefits. So they're, they're progressing, at, let's say, a few sites, but other sites still seem to be controlled. I think those are the patients I might consider adding chemotherapy onto it. Otherwise, I, you know, with the lack of data and the potential toxicity of continuing immune therapy, it's not clear that we need to keep it on. I, I typically, probably more common than not, I just switch to chemotherapy. But there are patients where, in, where it seems like they're having, a, you could either say a mixed response, where some, either they initially they have some things that respond and other things that are progressing, or they respond entirely, and then at some point some things grow, but other things remain stable or, or responding. Um, and those are patients where I think maybe adding on uh, chemotherapy to immune therapy might be um, appropriate. And, and I think until we have data, it's, it's reasonable to consider adding it on. There was a, a trial, I, I know of one, maybe there are others, that the Insignia, Insignia trial, um, it's a cooperative group trial. Um, it's asking a couple questions, and that's one of them. So, you know, in patients who get, um, in this trial, pembrolizumab as first-line therapy at the time of progression, is it uh, beneficial to switch to chemotherapy or to add it on? So exactly the question you're asking. I imagine that for some patients it's beneficial to add it and some patients not. So hopefully that trial or others will help us sort that out when, when it's okay to drop it. Remember to visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash NSCLC3 to receive your credit and evaluate this program. Drs. Rizvi and Goldberg discuss toxicities with IO therapy and the trial design of semiplumab that enabled participants to remain on the immunotherapy. Let's rejoin our discussion. You mentioned earlier that uh, in our last podcast that um, that toxicity can develop at any time. You know, it's, it's more common earlier, but it can develop even months or years into treatment. So if we can drop the immune therapy at some point safely, I think it's probably better to do that. Yeah. Um, but if it seems that there's still some benefit, it's, I think, reasonable to continue it. Yeah, there's um, there's initial, there's a, a little... Um, uh, nuance to the semiplumab phase three trial, randomizing patients to uh, semiplumab or chemotherapy in the PDL one more than 50% phase three randomized trial that was positive for semiplumab. Um, but what they did do in that trial for a, for a portion of patients was the patients that progressed on the semiplumab, uh, they were able to add in four cycles of chemotherapy and continue the semiplumab going. So you progress on semiplumab, you get Keep getting, keep getting the semiplumab, four cycles of chemotherapy, then can you continue the semiplumab? So it'll be pretty um, interesting. To It's not the, exactly the same as the Insignia trial, but I think we'll also shed perhaps a little bit of light of how we can maybe turn things around by tweaking the, the cancer by a short course of chemotherapy. Yeah, I think that, I forgot about that. That was part of the design of the semiplumab trial. I, I think that's going to be really interesting to see that data. I don't think they've released results on, on the, how those patients did when they had the chemo added on um, after progression on the single agent, but I think that's going to be really interesting. I'm, I'm glad that they put that in their design so that we could start to have right. an understanding of the benefit, potential benefit of that. So I, I think it's probably worth, um, you know, the, spending the last bit of this podcast, you know, talking about non-metastatic. Uh, oh, before I get to that, um, I think it's important to note that, you know, there's different types of progression and, you know, um, we've all had patients that have been on um, IO therapy and, you know, for three months or six months or nine months, and they may progress in like a lymph node or one area, like an adrenal lesion or a lung lesion. And um, your group has certainly published on this as well. We're trying to manage those isolated or oligo progressors with radiation or surgery can actually 
allow them to maintain therapy on immunotherapy and, and, and translate into durable benefit. Um, do you want to comment on that work, uh, Sarah? Sure. So as you said, there are some patients who have this, you know, really clear uh, progression in one or a few sites, which is, people are, are calling oligoprogression. Um, why it happens is not clear. We, we have in our group and you know, many others been trying to, to understand progression in general on immune therapy, but I think this oligoprogression really is so interesting where many sites continue to respond and, and, and stay in, in, a, in a kind of a remission state, but then other sites, one or, or a few progress. And so you, the data you're referring to is a retrospective study that we did looking at our patients where we treated with local therapy. The, the um, kind of the, the similar uh, pattern of, of treatment is what we've been doing for many years on patients with on EGFR therapies, where in that setting as well, we, we sometimes will see oligoprogression and local therapy there seems to allow you to continue on the EGFR therapy for a while longer. And it seems to be the case here as well in that study. And then since that study, I've had many other patients that I've, I've, um, I've taken down this path. It really does seem to be effective where it's just these one or few places that that the, the cancer seems to be uh, figuring out how to, to, to grow despite the treatment, but the, the rest of the disease is remaining under control. And so um, so those, those patients can really potentially benefit from, from local therapy, whether that's radiation or surgery, or we've actually used some ablation with our interventional radiologists. Um, I've seen kind of done some the gamut of things for patients depending on the, the site, usually less surgery, but occasionally um, it's appropriate. But it can be really effective. And I, I've had patients where, that have clearly progressed in one or a few sites and then can continue on the immune therapy for sometimes years longer um, after the local therapy. So I think it's a great strategy for patients. I typically will get a PET scan before I go down that path because I want to make sure it really is just those couple of sites and there's not other things that are, are looking active as well. Um, but I think it, it could be considered for some patients. Okay, so I have another question for you based on your your research interest, and uh, it's a patient who's PDL one eighty percent. They come into your office, and um, you know they have, let's say, six brain metastases, each measuring three to five millimeters in size. Um, certainly, for in the past, we would give gamma knife to those lesions in the era of targeted therapy. We may just try the targeted therapy for targeted therapy agents with good brain, good brain penetration. What about immunotherapy in the brain? What would you do for this patient? So we are starting to see more data that immune therapy can be active in the brain. Um, and so I think in some cases we can absolutely see responses in the brain that are just as good as in the body and sometimes extremely durable. We had well, the study you're referring to is we have a, had a study of uh, pembrolizumab for patients with asymptomatic brain metastases. And on that study, we saw a few patients who had really, really durable responses, you know, well beyond um, year or two years for some of them. Um, so before then, and that study and a few other studies similar to that, we really didn't even know if it could work in the brain. You know, the, a lot of the, uh, the targeted therapies, the TKIs, have clear brain penetration, but not, not really the immune therapies, but it, but it can work. Um, the question is, is it the right thing to do for patients? And I, we don't really know yet. I, I think, you know, we, we don't have, you know, our study was a fairly small study. There's a few other studies now that are larger, but mostly retrospective or subset analyses. So I, I think it's still early to say that you can use immune therapy instead of local therapy for brain metastases. I think in select cases, very select, you could consider it. You know, in a, in a patient like you're describing that has a couple of small lesions in, in non-critical locations that if they grew, you wouldn't, they wouldn't run into trouble. 
I think it's worth considering if you think their chance of response is high. So that's typically a high PDL1 expressor. Um, you have to watch those patients really closely though. On our trial, we got MRI, brain MRIs every six weeks uh, to make sure we weren't putting anyone in harm's way. So I think it could be a consideration for very select patients, but I think still using local therapy is, is the standard for the vast majority of patients. Um, and there are some patients who have a lot of small brain mets where you'd really have to consider whole brain radiation. I try to avoid that at all costs in my patients. You know that with immune therapy, people can live for years and, and whole brain radiation can really have long-term toxicity. So if that's the case, I might actually feel more inclined to try immune therapy on its own with, you know, in, in a case where they need whole brain radiation or maybe think about doing stereotactic radiosurgery to a couple of the concerning lesions and then, and then immune therapy. But whole brain radiation is another story where I really would try to avoid that if, if possible. Great. Well, that was a great um, overview of, of, of brain metastases. So for the last um, five minutes or so, I think, you know, we want to sort of focus on earlier stage lung cancer or non-metastatic lung cancer. You know, we now have phase three randomized data for patients who have unresectable stage three lung cancer that receive concurrent chemotherapy and radiation therapy maintenance or consolidation uh, with dervalimab, PDL one antibody for uh, one year uh, improves uh, both progression-free as well as um, overall survival. This is definitely um, the standard of care. It perhaps has shifted more people away from trying to resect these tumors and maybe try to treat them with definitive um, chemotherapy and radiation therapy. Sarah, I mean, I mean, I think it's safe to say that's your standard of care. Do you want to comment on? Uh, what you do with pdl one zero patients, what you do with EGFR mutant patients. So it's just like I was saying before, where we get some answers and then we have many more. So I agree with you. This is now the standard to use Dervalumab after concurrent chemo radiation for stage three disease. Um, improvement in you know, survival is, I think, clear. And so um, overall, it's the standard. But then there's these you know, there's some questions still, and, and one of the questions is with the low pdl one So there was less benefit in the patients who had low pdl one whether there was no benefit, I think is still unclear to me. And so with the challenges in PDL1 testing and the lack of a definite lack of benefit, I'm not saying that exactly right, but I, I still use it regardless of PDL1. Maybe in someone who's a little more borderline, who has like a mild autoimmune condition, I might think twice because you know you're weighing risks and benefits. But um, I still would use it in an, a PDL10 patient until I know better otherwise. Same with EGFR, you know, patients with EGFR mutations were allowed on the trial. I think, you know, we haven't really talked about this actually. EGFR mutant patients tend to have much lower response rate to immune therapy in general. Um, they have lower benefit with this as well. But again, I don't think that means they have no benefit. So I still would consider treating them with their Valumab. Um, you know, same goes for never smokers. I think they probably have less benefit with, with um with Dervalumab, but it's uh, it's still something where you don't know that they have no benefit. So I think it's worth using. I, I think the challenge, and again, this is a whole other topic, but the challenge is now in, in um, now that we have kind of other adjuvant therapy for EGFR mutant patients that we might consider adjuvant osimertinib, which is better. I think because we don't know about adjuvant, well, it's not really called adjuvant, but we don't know about Dervalumab in patients who have, you know, who get resected, and we don't um, and the, the data for adjuvant osimertinib is after surgery, I, I try to keep to the trials of what we know. And so for patients who have EGFR mutant lung cancer and get surgery, 
I'll consider adjuvant osimertinib. But if they have definitive chemoradiation without surgery, I'm still going in the direction of dervalumab. I would love to see data on which is superior. Um, but as of now, without that data, I, I still think using immune therapy is, is appropriate. What do you do, Nair? Yeah, I mean, I, I mostly agree with you. I mean, I, I think the data with adjuvant, you know, osimertinib um, in resected lung cancers is so powerful. And then the, the number of EGFR mutant patients in the Pacific trial with Dervalumab consolidation was relatively small that um, wouldn't be, you know, FDA approved, but I would probably be more inclined to give those patients adjuvant osimertinib um, than Dervalumab, you know, because Dervalumab, I mean, the adjuvant immunotherapy is, there are risks to it. And, um, you know, although the risk of pneumonitis was not felt to be appreciably different, I mean, uh, my personal experience is that it probably is more than, than um, you know, without the dervalumab. And that, that comes to another question, you know, really is um, you have a patient, um, they got uh, chemo RT, and then they developed after two doses of dervalumab, sort of in-field pneumonitis, um, not widespread. And it's a patient of mine right now who's on a steroid tapering course and he's improving. Do you go back to the dervalumab in those patients? Um, I think the answer is yes. I think it would make sense to go back to them. Your thoughts, Sarah? So I think there's a, a, probably a difference between, like you're saying, infield and in, in, in the radiation field, pneumonitis and more widespread. In a more widespread pneumonitis, I'd be more worried that it was actually the dervalumab that was causing it. Um, and so I, I probably wouldn't in that case. Something that looked more like radiation pneumonitis, it very well could still be that the dervalumab was making that worse. Right. It may not just be radiation alone, but you know, with, with some time to recover and get further out from the radiation, it's reasonable to consider rechallenging. I think maybe some of the things that I might consider are how severe was it? You know, if it's grade one or two, I think it's reasonable. Grade three, I probably wouldn't. And then the other thing is how likely do I think they are to benefit from the Dervalumab? So I, I know I just said I would treat someone with a pdl one of zero and a never smoker and all that. But if it was that type of patient who developed a pneumonitis, I might feel less excited to rechallenge. You know, if I thought the potential benefit was lower and they already developed the toxicity, I, I probably wouldn't rechallenge them. But someone who I think has a high chance of benefit and had a mild toxicity, I, I would I would think about doing it. And then lastly, I think what what you know what's not something that's in our current availability of therapies, but um, I think will potentially could be soon is the neoadjuvant treatment. Um, with immunotherapy in patients who have resectable lung cancer. Um, you know, we and others have published work combining PD-1 or PDL one with chemotherapy and um, the pathologic complete response um, with that combination is, uh, you know, ranging in the 30 to 50% range, which is, you know, pretty astounding given, you know, the historical data with chemotherapy alone producing a pathologic complete response, probably in the five to 8% range. The phase three randomized um, trial conducted with nivolumab and chemotherapy, um, you know, the top line data that it, it um, met its primary endpoint. And we look forward to um, seeing what that um, data looks like. And it potentially could be, a, you know, an approval in the, in, in the future. It's not necessarily standard across centers in this country to give neoadjuvant chemotherapy for the, for the good reason that there's not a lot of randomized data saying neoadjuvant is better than adjuvant, but these data are, are pretty compelling. And I think, um, you know, could definitely change the landscape of how we treat resectable 
stage two and three a um, lung cancer. I'm sure you agree, Sarah, and any additional comments you have on that? I agree. I think this is one of the most exciting areas of, of research right now in lung cancer is the, the neoadjuvant and, and also adjuvant data on um, immune therapy uh, for early stage disease. So I, I think at some point we're going to be using it for, for early stage disease as well for resected patients. Um, whether it's neoadjuvant or adjuvant, with chemo, without chemo. I'm not sure because these trials are all ongoing, but I, I think the data looks so exciting. And um, with what we've seen in, in the metastatic setting and in stage three, I, with the, the benefit there, I think, it, I think it's going to translate to earlier stage disease as well. I think this is something that if we uh, talk again on, on this podcast next year, maybe, or maybe the year after, we'll, we'll hopefully be talking about this as a new standard of care. Um, not yet, and we are still waiting for the data. I think one thing that is clear from some of these studies is that it's safe. You know, there's there's always concern with neoadjuvant therapy that you're going to make someone uh, inoperable or you know unresectable and incurable. But I think from the studies we have so far, it looks like um, it's safe. You, you do sometimes get immune toxicities, but um, but patients are able to get to surgery in the vast majority of cases, and it, it doesn't seem to to delay things significantly or cause major problems. So, so that's very reassuring. And now it's just a question of, you know, the important question of does it improve survival? So we will see. I'm excited about that data. Um, hopefully it will change practice in the future. Great. So, um, you know, we haven't had a chance to, to discuss, but there's a number of other, you know, newer um, therapies on the horizon, lung cancer combining um, VEGF TKIs like uh, lenvatinib and citrovatinib with, um, with immunotherapy. There's um, cell therapy approaches and 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 uh, you know many others. So it's it's uh, clearly an exciting time for um, immunotherapy and lung cancer. Um, uh, thank you, Sarah, for your great insights, and thank you, audience, for listening. Thank you for joining us today. Remember to go to morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash nsclc3 to receive your credit and evaluate this program. If you've missed any of our episodes or would like to listen to them again please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash NSCLC to find a listing of all three podcasts.